Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland, Associate Director for Public Programming here in the Energy Program. This week, we talked to two experts about methane reduction strategies. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and oil and gas companies are increasingly focused on understanding both their methane emissions and how to reduce those emissions from their operations. Some studies estimate that upwards of $30 billion is lost each year to methane leakages worldwide. So what are companies doing on this issue? Given that the companies have large investments and often have multiple partners in any project, what are the challenges to implementing reduction strategies in a meaningful way? To help us understand this issue, my colleague, Nico Safos, a senior fellow here in the Energy Program, was joined by Isabel Mogstad with the Methane Solutions Practice at EDF, and Joff Walker, who is a co-founder and managing director at Water Street Partners. If you don't know Water Street Partners, they support some of the largest upstream oil companies globally on their structuring, restructuring, and governing of their most important joint ventures. Let's turn it over to Nikos. Welcome, uh, Isabel and Jeff. I'm very happy that you guys have uh, come by to talk about this very important issue. Um, Isabel, I wanted to start with you. You recently authored uh, this report called uh, The Next Frontier, Managing Methane Risk from Non-Operated Assets. Uh, So maybe uh, let's start at the top. Uh, why are we talking about this topic? Why is it a big deal? Uh, what are you guys doing over at the Environmental Defense Fund, and and how does this report fit into that research agenda? Definitely. Well, thanks for having us today. So, I lead the methane solutions practice at Environmental Defense Fund, uh, one of the world's largest environmental organizations with more than two million members and over seven hundred staff globally, and. EDF's philosophy is really to tackle the largest environmental threats with practical solutions driven by science and driven by economics. And methane, in many ways, embodies the ethos of the types of problems that Environmental Defense Fund addresses for a few reasons. So first, methane is a pernicious and potent greenhouse gas that is 84 times uh, more potent than CO2 in the first 20 years after its release to atmosphere. It's also a lost product, and it's a lost product for one of the largest energy industries, um, oil and gas. So methane is, is just natural gas that isn't combusted, and it's released from infrastructure worldwide, both in intended operations, so from equipment that naturally depressurizes like pneumatic controllers and other uh, gas-actuated devices. But then you also have fugitive emissions, which can happen anywhere, anytime. And EDF has recognized through robust science in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, uh, Europe, and other parts of the world that Not only is there an opportunity to save money by keeping methane in the pipe out of the atmosphere, but there's a significant environmental benefit as well. And more importantly, it's also cost effective. So reducing oil and gas methane emissions by some estimates is one of the most cost effective things we can do in the near term to reduce climate warming. And by some estimates, the oil and gas industry uh, releases upwards of $30 billion of methane to atmosphere annually worldwide. So tremendous opportunity to minimize lost product while having a positive impact on the environment. So my job is to work with oil and gas companies 
technology firms, innovation entrepreneurs, regulators, policymakers, and others to manage and minimize oil and gas emissions um, across the value chain. And so why this analysis? So while some companies are really demonstrating leadership in reducing emissions uh, from their operated portfolios, what we've learned is there's, there's still immense opportunity and work to be done to level set and get the global oil and gas industry actively reducing, reducing their emissions across the board. And so while many of the largest publicly traded oil and gas companies are taking uh, leadership in reducing their emissions and setting targets, there's still tremendous work to be done, particularly with national oil companies, state-owned enterprises. Uh, when you look at the data, seven of the 10 largest daily producers of oil and gas are NOCs. So when we think about impact, we know that we need to um, reduce emissions across the broader ecosystem of players to really realize the full potential of reducing methane and thus minimizing near-term warming. So through relationships between the publicly traded companies and many state-owned enterprises and other enterprises in this ecosystem, we see that as one of the clearest, most linear paths to extending the coverage and potential impact of methane reduction efforts by bringing in networks of companies that already have deep business ties, share technology, share press best practices, and that will allow us to reduce methane across new players and geographies. That's great. And it sounds very promising and a, and a great way to tackle this important challenge. Uh, Jeff, maybe to you, um, what are the wrinkles around that? I mean, the oil and gas industry obviously collaborates, companies collaborate with each other, um, and those relationships can get uh, complicated. Uh, we're talking about, about very big investments, very big assets. Uh, agreements to govern these relationships can run into sort of the tens or hundreds of pages. Um, what are the challenges in extending uh, sort of what the uh, major companies are doing in uh, methane to their non-operated assets? Yeah, let me um, maybe come at this from a bit of a, a business perspective. I think uh, first, I don't know that there's a more partner-intensive industry than the oil and gas industry, and it's surprising to a lot of folks outside of it that uh, basically, if you look at some of the big companies in the industry, their entire business is tied up in partnerships. Um, and those partnerships broadly fall into three different flavors. One is uh, we operate, so we have other partners, but we operate this asset or business. Our partners operate, and we're a partner, and we have a seat at the table, but we are not in control. Or We've created what, what Isabel called in the report a joint venture operating company, which operates this asset on our behalf. So what's the implication of that? The implication of that is we can't always get what we want. We have uh, negotiated agreements that dictate what we can and can't do in these joint ventures, but many of them are 10, 20, 30. You see some that are you know, decades old. So it's an impossible to account for every eventuality. And what happens is these joint venture agreements that dictate these partnerships, they, they're silent on this kind of stuff. And um, uh, so companies are left in a position where they have their formal rights outlined in these joint venture agreements, and they're pretty good about exercising those. But the real game for joint ventures that you don't control is about exercising informal influence over things that you want that your partner may or may not want. 
And this matters particularly on this issue of methane because the biggest oil and gas companies in the world, like upwards of half of their production comes from joint ventures that they don't control. That can be quite surprising, but it's a fact, meaning they can't just say what they want and it happens. They're in a negotiation effectively with their partner trying to influence them to align around this objective. Let's pick up on that topic a little bit uh, more. Um, and maybe come to you, Isabel, before we go back to the joint ventures. What's the reaction you're seeing so far? Because uh, what, uh, you know, Jeff described, Jeff described is, you know, there's an opportunity here to engage your partners. Uh, you may not have any formal uh, rights to do so. Um, what's the reaction that you're hearing from sort of the companies? Are they receptive to this? Do they see a, a lot of challenges in doing so? Um, what's the status of your conversations? Yeah, so I think overall the reaction to our analysis and just our general foray into this space broadly is a recognition from our industry colleagues that this is a significant opportunity, but frankly, it's going to be a real challenge. And just to put a finer point on on opportunity, you know, the companies analyzed in the report are the publicly traded companies in the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is a 13-member uh, voluntary coalition that has a commitment to reduce the methane intensity from its oil and gas value chain to 0.25% of marketed gas by 2025. And the publicly traded companies in this initiative are all uh, operators of assets and non-operating partners in a vast ecosystem of joint ventures. So when, when you look at the opportunity they have to drive impact from their operated assets, and mind you, their commitment today is for operated assets only. If they're to successfully achieve their target, they're going to be influencing and driving emissions reductions at approximately 30% of oil and gas production worldwide. Now, if you extend that to their full portfolios, so operated assets and non-operated assets, they could cover and potentially impact 50% of global oil and gas production. And that's a big deal, and that matters. But what we've heard and what we recognize is that's going to be challenging. And I think to Joff's point, it's challenging because you have many other players at the table with different motivations and different incentives. And finding ways to work with those partners and share the information, technology, capital, and potentially risk that's involved in this is a multifaceted issue that will take time. So I think overall what we've heard is, yes, we recognize this is an important area to address, but it will take time, it will take resources, um, and it's not going to happen overnight. And I, I would just add to that, um, in the last few weeks, we saw Chevron, who's also a member of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, announce their company-wide methane reduction target. Uh, it's an absolute target. And 
this target is the first of kind because it's going to include emissions reductions both from operated and non-operated assets. And to date, the other, both the other coalitions like OGCI and individual company targets have been specifically focused on operated assets only. So I think it's a positive signal um, and reassuring that companies can take some leadership in this space. There will be questions about validating and actualizing those targets, but it can be done if there's motivation and the right partners at the table. Jeff, I want to go back to you on sort of the nitty-gritty details of this and the implementation and the execution of this. Um, in particular, I'm interested in the distinction you made before between formal and informal, right? Um, if I heard you correctly, you're saying you and I have a piece of document as a joint venture that doesn't really talk about this at all. Uh, so there isn't really much on the document that you and I have that I can use to talk about this issue. So how do we talk about this issue? How do you see this evolving? And and do you think that the joint venture document should include that in the future? Should we be thinking about future agreements that incorporate this? Or do we have the paperwork more or less right? We shouldn't really tinker with that, that this is mostly about capitalizing on an existing business relationship regardless of whatever legal arrangement we have? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Honestly, it's not one I've thought about a bunch. So let me let me try and give you a kind of a top-of-head uh, answer. I think, one, um, there are limits to how much uh, you can write into a joint venture agreement. Anybody who's uh, listening and has kind of worked on a deal will uh, know that from the simplest deal to you know, I'm, uh, I'm buying a home to these incredibly complex partnerships that are going to live on for uh, years. So I think, um, I think it's probably not as simple as writing a term into the deal. Uh, it's probably uh, much more ensuring that there are principles embedded in the deal which will enable us to pursue objectives that either are important to us today or will become important to us in the future. So Isabel was talking a little bit earlier around uh, kind of the data or the absence of it on an issue like this when it comes to methane. So I, I would think it would be highly unlikely that you would write a term into an agreement that would say, here is what we expect to be shared you know, now and uh, into the future on, uh, on methane, because frankly, it's evolving what you would want to measure. You know, to come back to my point, though, about kind of at the principal level, I think it is reasonable to put something in there to say the partners can, uh, 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 can, must, should, shall choose the, um, choose the language, align on how we want to uh, uh, measure, uh, agree on our objectives and measure certain things that are going to be important for us going forward. And we'd like access to that information and it to be shared in both ways. So... There's a, there's a way to kind of capture the principle of there are uh, emerging issues that will become important to us, and we need an agreement that is flexible enough to allow us to kind of pursue those objectives with one another. That's the formal side of the agreement. On the informal side, I think it's actually a much more practical, and this is what companies in the industry are wrestling with, which is um, 
how do we align with our partners on kind of what we want? And presumably on the core business objectives like uh, uh, operating uh, the asset uh, to production uh, targets, uh, cost targets, uh, safety is always kind of first and foremost. You can generally align on those things, but there are uh, you know other objectives where partners may have different views on uh, uh, if that should be an objective at all, and if so, how that would rank among the other objectives that you're focused on, like the 13 or so uh, companies that have committed to these methane targets. I think it's fantastic. And where they're partners with one another, great, that should be easy. But for all the other players in the oil and gas industry, which actually makes up a big chunk of the production, they haven't signed on. And well, why not? Uh, and so now if I'm one of the signatories or aiming at these targets, how do I influence my partner um, uh, to either adopt this as an objective or uh, to not adopt it as an objective, but agree that it's something that's important to both of us, help them understand the benefits of doing that, and get them to share information with us or to deploy certain technologies that will uh, reduce emissions. Um, and the influencing game is one that companies in the industry who we've been working with over the past uh, you know, 10 years or so have been spending a lot of time thinking about and raising their game in terms of how do they informally influence their partners on things that they care about. And I think the companies in the industry have been getting better about it. And to me, it strikes me that this is an example of something that fits quite nicely into that strategy of informally influencing on things that we care about. Let me drill into two of the things that you both talked about, and I want to open it up whoever wants to take this question. Uh, we talked about information and data, uh, and we talked, uh, Isabel, you talked about capital and sort of sharing some of the risk. And um, and I wanted to ask, uh, do we have a good, uh, is it going to be easier or harder to do these things relative to all the other decisions governed by a joint venture agreement? For example, information sharing is something that companies tend to be very sensitive about on some issues. Uh, do we think that methane is going to be one of those areas that maybe companies feel more or less sensitive than other areas? So you may not be able to share other data that companies try to keep close to their chest when they operate, but do we think that methane is going to be one of those areas or might they be more willing? And the same thing on the conversations around capital. Obviously, when you're a non-operated partner, you may have some views about how a project might be developed and what the right balance might be between different options, and one option might do better or worse on methane. Um, do we think that it being able to incorporate methane into those conversations will be easier or harder than all the other aspects that you're always trying to negotiate with your partners? And I'll open it up to either of you who wants to take a, a first crack at that. I'm happy to go. I think the first one should be relatively easy. Um, I have uh, observed a spirit of collaboration in the industry on issues that everyone views as just kind of important to us together, safety, uh, HSE, health, safety, and environment. Uh, and for me, this fits naturally in that category of, hang on a sec, yes, in many cases we're competitors. Uh, but this is um, important uh, to what we do. Our business depends on it, and we as an industry need to find ways to collaborate effectively on this. So I think, um, I think not, not that actually doing it will be easy, but I would expect a great openness 
on companies to do this because it is highly consistent with what they talk about, which is we need to collaborate continuously with our partners to make um, this industry more uh, more safe. Um, so I think that's uh, um, that's an easier one. The 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 harder part is uh, okay. We can agree to collaborate. What trade-offs are we asking each other to make? And um, this is where I think it it gets uh, it gets quite interesting because different partners can have different objectives for the asset uh, or for um, their portfolio of assets. For instance, um, a uh, a major like a BP or an ExxonMobil or a Shell or Chevron has a set of financial objectives for that asset, strategic objectives for that asset. There are kind of minimum standards around safety that they've committed to publicly that those are will always be quite important to them. Uh, a national oil company who, uh, you know, many of these majors, almost all of them have uh, significant partnerships with, may include things like employment objectives in their assets uh, that are located domestically. Like, hey, this is an important thing for us. It may be less so to our partner, but uh, it's very important to us. Or to have objectives around kind of technology transfer and skill uh, and capability development. So um, what what uh, is, is kind of fascinating to watch unfold in an actual asset where these partners are living with one another, an agreement that they've written either recently or a long time ago is, how do you reconcile those uh, various objectives? And is there a uh, a kind of a, a, a win-win for uh, for both or all of the partners, depending on the number that may be in the asset. So perhaps I can speak a little bit to some of the capital requirements that will be required or considerations in thinking about broader uh, scale of methane reduction efforts to non-operated assets. So I think there's tremendous opportunity, and three there's sort of three themes that really come to mind. So the first is this notion of proprietary versus open access data and recognizing a point you made earlier that there's going to be some information that partners are more willing to share than others and sort of how you define what's proprietary and what's not. The the opportunity and challenge, frankly, with methane emissions is this is a global issue and it's not confined just to the partners. Emissions released to the atmosphere are um, should be and are a concern for civil society, for regulators and policymakers, for companies and other stakeholders. So that data, maybe the direct measurements and specifics might be proprietary, but the macro level trends and patterns in emissions worldwide is a public issue. And there are increasingly solutions out there that are generating open access methane emissions data that are shedding light on broader trends and patterns that we're seeing in emissions worldwide. So one example of that is Environmental Defense Fund in the last year announced that we're going to be launching a methane detecting satellite called MethaneSat. It's going to be launched by 2021. And MethaneSat is going to be detecting methane across 80% of the world's oil and gas production uh, with a 200-kilometer view path. So it will be able to detect hotspots over large-scale infrastructure in many geographies where the lead operator 
maybe doesn't have a methane commitment. And all of the data from methane sat is going to be open access and available to these companies and available to the public. So anyone who wants to get a handle on where are the biggest opportunities to start to engage with the operating partner in a joint venture, you can use this data to be strategic and efficient with your resources and your time. Another example of actualizing emissions reductions at non-operated assets is thinking about the new business and service models that are coming online. You know, one of the promising signals we're getting, particularly from oil field service companies, is they're thinking about how to integrate methane mitigation and management into their offerings with their existing partners. And particularly for some key national oil companies, Oil field services like the Schlumbergers and Baker Hughes GEs of the world are close partners, and you could imagine a world where these services are seamlessly integrated into existing service models, driving down the cost per asset, driving down the cost per inspection, um, and really optimizing and integrating methane management into broader asset maintenance. And the final one that maybe is the most promising is leveraging the trend and growth in oil field digitalization to really tap into the predictive and preventative maintenance that's taking place across the industry and across operations and integrating methane management into that. So it doesn't become this standalone EHS challenge. It becomes an operations excellence opportunity. I wanted to engage your imagination a little bit now. Uh, let's imagine we meet again in three years or five years and we can meet and we've made a lot of progress in this area, actually more progress than you expect at this point. What happened? Was it sort of technology? Was it some of the big companies signed on and made a commitment? Was it regulation? What was it that led us to that breakthrough? And alternatively, if we meet again in three or five years and we just haven't really gotten anywhere on this topic, what would you probably attribute it to relative to where we are today? Uh, let, me, let me maybe take a cut at it, Isabel, first, and then you can, I'm sure, improve upon this uh, answer. So, you know, as I was just listening to you uh, articulate that, uh, if it does work, what will have happened? Um, in my mind, there's, uh, there's a few things. Um, one is commitment, and we've already begun to see that. Uh, when big publicly traded companies make commitments like this, uh, what tends to happen is uh, people who care about this stuff follow up on that. So Anna, I, I suspect you'll start to see analysts asking how they're doing against those targets um, in ways that uh, um, reinforces the, uh, the commitment that companies have made publicly. So I, I think if we've got a good news story, that will have happened. Uh, the second and uh, Isabel will know this uh, better than I will, is there will be some advances in technology that make it easier and less costly to fix the problem. Uh, a third category for me is uh, transparency will uh, reinforce commitment and uh, create uh, even more urgency around the development of technology that makes this easier to solve. Isabel was talking about the satellite technology that they're getting ready to deploy. I mean, imagine the power of that open source data where you can go and look kind of asset by asset or region by region at methane oozing out of 
uh, an asset. I, I think that is an incredibly powerful uh, or potentially an incredibly powerful source. So uh, for me, it's some combination of, um, of those things. I'm sure that's a complete list. But one, uh, uh, companies have committed to this and they're delivering on those commitments. Two, the technology continues to improve. And three, transparency into how companies are doing and delivering this kind of reinforces a virtuous cycle of those, um, those different factors. And if we failed? I think I'll let Isabel answer that one. Well, that's not as fun. <laughs> well, his answer on why we succeeded yeah. is all of the yeah. above. So he hasn't left you much space on success. <laughs> so you have to deal with failure. I, I can try to deal with failure. <laughs> let me add just maybe two and a half finer points or maybe additional remarks on success. I think Joff hit on the main ones. A few others come to mind, though, that have been real drivers for uh, the initial progress made uh, on methane commitments. And I hope to see those same drivers permeate the non-operated asset space. The first is investor pressure on publicly traded companies. You know, investors have played a key role through shareholder resolutions and direct engagement with the companies to encourage them, incentivize them, and recognize them for leadership on this issue. And I hope that in three to five years, we will see investors asking the right questions and putting the right pressures on publicly traded leaders to expand the coverage of their commitments. And I think they're well positioned to do that in the next few years. I, I think if we see real extension of efforts to non-operated assets, it may in part be driven by an extension of the OGCI methane reduction commitment. As I mentioned earlier today, the commitment is confined just to operated assets, and that covers about 30% of global oil and gas production. Five years from now, it would be really promising and an important signal that the OGCI members are dedicated to continuous improvement if they've extended the coverage of their commitment to include non-operated assets as well. And then the final point I'll make on the positive side, we can get to some of the challenges, is you know there's, there's another important initiative out there, which is the Methane Guiding Principles, another voluntary initiative that has members such as the publicly traded companies, some state-owned companies like Cutter Petroleum, NGOs, academics, other institutional thought leaders. And the, the methane guiding principles, one key facet of that is on the deployment of best practices and technologies. And I just want to highlight that in principle one, it explicitly states, quote, we encourage these actions in non-operated assets. And the methane guiding principles signatories really understand the opportunity to raise awareness, share best practices and knowledge with joint venture partners. And so I hope we'll see the proliferation of direct engagement, training, awareness raising from the principal signatories to really amplify and extend the coverage of their efforts. What could go wrong? I think the, the largest potential barrier and one that certainly can be overcome is data and transparency. You know, what you, you don't know what you don't measure. And so today, and this isn't going to be something that goes away immediately, there is a gap in the data and information we have globally about methane, where it's coming from, which assets are the leakiest, which vendors are providing the highest emitting valves and seals. There just isn't enough data yet. And I think there's been 
tremendous progress made in certain geographies and by certain companies, but we need two things to happen. And if, if they don't happen simultaneously in the next three to five years, it could be really challenging to actualize this broader coverage goal. The first is that we're just not going to have enough data on broad trends and patterns to be effective with the deployment of resources, particularly capital. And second, data and information around emissions is going to drive valid and credible targets. And so on one hand, I'm saying we want to see companies broaden the coverage of their commitments, and that's an important signal. But when they do that, they have to prove that emissions are being reduced across their portfolios. And to do so, they need good, transparent data that is driven in part by direct measurements, not just emissions factors, validated by third parties and auditors. And so there is going to be a hurdle that has to be overcome that partners in these joint venture assets are sharing high quality, high caliber data um, and without that, I think it will be challenging to really realize some of these goals. Yeah, the only other thought I had around fail, um, the price of a barrel. If, uh, if it comes under significant pressure, like we saw you know, four or five years ago, I think companies have done a good job about getting more competitive and managing their costs. But if you experience something like that again, this kind of thing comes under pressure um, because your focus shifts to um, laying off your people and uh, um, uh, maintaining your dividend and uh, uh, some very difficult questions that uh, the leadership teams of, of the, these the biggest players in the industry then spend. Um, it's not as if they don't spend a lot of time thinking about it now, but it's especially acute in that situation. So. Um, haven't thought that one wholly th uh, through wholly, but I, I think it will. These companies are doing well right now after years of hard work to kind of reset their cost base. And if there is another shock that kind of puts their uh, uh, viability um, in question, um, they may focus on other things first. Well, that's been great. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Jeff. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to Energy 360. Look for us on Twitter at CSIS Energy or at CSIS.org.